for centuries. They have been trying to keep us where they want us. Why do demons disappear when you die? And yet humans leave these nasty skeletons behind. We'll get our children back. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's season one, episode four, Armor. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Dan Coyce, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. And I'm Laura Miller, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. Episode four covers a relatively short part of the book, just pages 163 to 203. And maybe as a result, to my mind at least, it stands as the most satisfying episode yet. In this episode, Lyra and the Egyptians head north to Trollisund and meet some important new characters, the Witch's Consul, Kaiza, the Demon, Lee Scoresby, the Aeronaut, and Yorick Birneson, an armored bear. We also see Mrs. Coulter and Lord Boreal bending the Magisterium to their needs. Mrs. Coulter escapes punishment for her unauthorized sacking of Jordan College by telling the Magisterium she's got Lord Asriel prisoner. And Lord Boreal threatens a magisterium alethiometrist in order to get a question answered about his particular interest in the other worlds. So, what is the magisterium? What does it have to do with our world's Catholic Church? And what is Philip Pullman saying about religion in these books? Today, we'll take a closer look at the power that rules Lyra's world and how characters work within it and subvert it to achieve their own desires. As always on The Authority, we won't be spoiling future episodes of the show, but we will be talking about the world of Philip Pullman's books, so a few of the details we talk about might be spoiler-adjacent if you're concerned about such things. If you've got questions about His Dark Materials or responses to our show, email us at asktheauthority@slate.com or find us on Twitter at Dan Coyce and at Magician's Book. Just like listener Shannon McKinn did, who answered Laura's question about why Egyptians sell horses at the horse fair. The answer, for a long time, horses were used to tow boats up and down the canals of England, with a horse walking along the canal towpath, pulling the boat behind it. It is likely the Egyptians have a connection to horses because of that. Thanks, Shannon. All right, so let's start our discussion as the episode starts. With Lee Scoresby, who's played by Lin-Manuel Miranda, we first meet him up in his balloon high above the clouds singing a cowboy ditty along with uh, Hester, his Arctic hair demon. So first things first, uh, this is a delight that Philip Pullman never really gets into in his books. For a karaoke lover like me, the joy of singing with your demon. You have a singing partner for your whole entire life. She always wants to sing exactly when you do. You're always in harmony because of the mind meld between humans and demons. That just seems totally great. Laura, what did you think about uh, Lee Scoresby as we see him in this episode and about the choice of Lin-Manuel Miranda to portray him? I love Lin-Manuel Miranda in this role. I feel like one of the great things about this series is it's giving me more of an appreciation for some of the characters that I didn't pay as much attention to before. I never really loved Lee, partly because he seemed like such a sort of 1920s movie cowboy, like a Tom Mix type figure, mm-hmm. and a little bit of a kind of a cultural stereotype. Not not in a way that was offensive, but in a way that wasn't that interesting. And I really like the sort of fast-talking scamp that he that he is. I mean, he was always kind of a wisecracking cowpoke in the books, but there's something a little a little artful dodgerish about the Lin Manuel Miranda, at least Gorsby, that I find very fetching. 
Well, I mean, the first thing is that he's younger, right? So Lin-Manuel is, is nearing 40 uh, in the books. Lee Scoresby's in his late 50s. He's almost 60. And he is he's much more laconic. He's much more soft-spoken. He's more likely to avoid a fight than to provoke one, as Lee Scoresby does very early in this episode. And he, um, you know, Lee Scoresby in the books talks a lot about how he's been socking away money in his Wells Fargo savings account to go (laughs) buy a ranch and retire. Like, that's what he's looking forward to. And this Lee Scoresby seems like he's, you know, he's sort of mid-career, mid-aeronautical career, (laughs) and he's out still looking for adventure, and adventure finds him. And that is appealing. And, And for a TV show where... You know, we want adventure. We want these characters and we want the story, but we also want great, fun scenes. It seems like a like a not at all silly choice to to cast someone younger and someone fun in this role. The Lee of the series is based to a large extent not only on the Lee of The Golden Compass, but on the Lee of an earlier book. And I wrote about this on Slate this weekend. Based on the Lee Scoresby of a his his Dark Materials spinoff novel that Philip Pullman published in 2008 called Once Upon a Time in the North. And uh, it's set 35 years before the events of The Golden Compass. And so in this book, Lee is 24, younger than Lin-Manuel Miranda, but the character very closely resembles the Lee of the of this television series. He too is out looking for adventure. He too gets in scuffles and bars. He too is a like fast talking con man who tries to talk his way into and out of trouble. And I went earlier last week to a screening of this episode in New York that had uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda doing a talk back afterwards. And he specifically made the point that the first bit of research he did when he got cast in this role was not to read The Golden Compass again, but to go back and read Once Upon a Time in the North, a story that he wasn't that familiar with and that he thought ought to influence the Lee Scoresby he was playing as a as a younger guy. And he talked a lot about how a, a lot of this Lee is drawn from that char- character. And in fact, that scene where Lee tries to con Mr. Sisselman, the uh, the the town official who's played by uh, the actor that many people might recognize as Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter movies. As he's trying to con him with his legal mumbo jumbo, that's a scene directly out of Once Upon a Time in the North. Also directly out of Once Upon a Time in the North is the very close relationship between Lee and Yorick. Lee is heading to Trollison because he's heard that his friend Yorick is in trouble and he wants to help him. He even reminds Hester, that bear saved our lives. And this episode makes a lot more of the long friendship between those two. They have that long, heartfelt scene talking to each other about their pasts and where Yorick talks about how he doesn't want to own up to what he's done. And this all, too, comes from Once Upon a Time in the North. What the book does, which is so delightful for fans of the series, of the book series, but also I think for fans of this TV series, and I won't spoil anything for the rest of this TV series if you read it, what the book does is it gives us the very first meeting between Lee and York, them meeting in another rough northern town, getting in another scrape, becoming fast friends and developing this lifelong bond of the sort that really seems carried through in this series, much more so than in the original Golden Compass novel where they know each other and Lee sort of cracks wise about how bears are ornery critters and and Yorick's an ornery critter, no doubt. But you don't necessarily get the sense that they're tight the way that you do 
here. So Lee lands in Trollison. He immediately gets in this fight in a bar. He steals some wallets, which I found quite shocking. Uh, I don't often think of Lee as a as a thief, but you know he doesn't have any money and he's he uh, needs to get around. Meanwhile, Lyra and Farder Corum head over to the witch's console. He says that he will send a message to Serafina Pecola, and then he tests Lyra's alethiometry. Laura, we'll cover the witches in greater detail in a later episode, but can you tell us what it means that Farder Corum had this relationship with a witch 40 years ago? Well, it's it's not an unheard of thing. Witches have relationships with human men every so often or all the time, depending on how you look at it. But witches live much longer than humans do. I mean, they're human enough that they can have children with human beings, but they're not quite human. As a rule, I think they can live as long as a thousand years. So for them to have a relationship with a human man, and in Lyra's world, all the witches are women, is a kind of, well, it's almost like having a pet (laughs) to a human. Like you get it with the full knowledge that as much as you love it, it's, you know, you're going to outlive it and you're going to have to deal with losing it. So there is a sort of inherent um, little sadness or risk to to these love affairs, but they do happen. And we see how much it, as it affects Fartacorum even 40 years later, that he has aged and this relationship meant so much to him and the child they had who died also meant so much to him. And, and he says to Serafina, who he says also – was you know went a little mad when that child died and they haven't seen each other since and one scene i really really liked in this episode which is a little bit of a throwaway in the book i mean it's a, it's in the book this scene is meant to deliver a ton of information at once and it's the scene when kaiza serafina's demon flies down and lands on the, one of the egyptian ships and talks to lyra and fardacorum and in in the series this is played this makes much more out of the the great joy and also sadness that Fardacorum feels in seeing this demon again, the the demon of this woman who he loved and it seems sort of still loves. And the very kind of odd, just slightly inhuman politeness of Kaiza toward him. Yes. It's a very sort of ceremonial encounter. The scene where Fardacorum tells Lyra about his history with Serafina may be my favorite scene in the whole series so far. I, I thought it was magnificently done, and it gets across so much of the theme of the work. What happened between you and Serafina? We loved each other. You loved a witch? We had a child. A son. There was an epidemic. There was nothing we could do. He died. And she wanted to rip the world apart. Fly to Yambi Aka, fight her. If that's what it took to get him back. I wanted to mourn in peace. I haven't seen her since. You know, we have this old man played amazingly by James Cosmo, who's just incredible in this. And this child. We have experience and innocence, which are the two sort of opposed forces in this story. And 
Usually when you have a scene with a child and an old person in a movie, the old person is, you know, affirming or advising the child or dispensing wisdom. And this is unusual in that Vatercorum is being so vulnerable and honest with Lyra. He's really treating her almost as if she was an adult. But at the same time, you feel very much the difference between them. There is this way that experience can't really be communicated. You, you know, what you understand about life through living a bunch of years can only be understood through living a bunch of years. You can't, you can't really convey it to another person. And so she can't really understand what he's saying, although she has this great empathy for him. She can see how much he has loved and how much he has lost. And there is this very beautiful dignity and stature to to both of those experiences as he talks about them. There is what we were talking about earlier, the sort of grandeur of adulthood. There, it, There is this weight and significance to what he has experienced that she can only get a little hint of. And I don't know. I found that the the whole scene incredibly moving, particularly because it's it's mostly underplayed. And it's funny to think that as Farter Coram and his weight of experience is to Lyra, so really is Serafina to him, right? She's hundreds of years older than him. She's lived ages longer than he ever will. And it will be really interesting to see uh, how that is played you know, should these two characters get a chance to meet up again? Um, that relationship seems to just augment this notion of Philip Pullman's that that the maturity of adulthood has value separate and in many ways greater than the innocence of childhood. And then that Pullman created these not exactly ageless but nearly ageless creatures who fight their own wars and have their own relationships, yet often touch down very gently on the human world and affect it in a great way, I find very moving. So then we get to the the big reveal of Yorick Birneson, the enormous armored bear without his armor. Yorick Birneson! Three years, long as all that. It has not been a good three years. You want to help, Yorick? Can we help? I owe you. We both know it. And how can you help me? Some look good naked, you do not. Who has it? Your armor. I am drunkly and not behaving as a bear should. And I'd rather you leave. And what if I don't want to go? He has essentially been enslaved by the people of Trollison uh, for his metalworking after they got him drunk on spirits and stole his precious armor. So, what do you think of our old friend Yorick here? What What do you think of this kind of slightly more regretful Yorick uh, as opposed to the Yorick of the book? Yeah, the Yorick of the book is kind of grumpy and surly, and he, you know, has been tricked not by the magisterium, but by the town folk. So it's almost like a weird fable-like mini-narrative. You know, the the people of the village 
trick the bear by getting him drunk and stealing his armor, and then they hold his armor hostage in order to get him to do all this work for them. It's a very sort of villagey story and not part of the big conniving magisterium story. And I kind of like that about the book. I, I like the way that you feel like you've just briefly stepped into sort of like a fairy tale or a fable or a little legend of the peasant classes. But he is, you know, he, he's got a, he's got this scratched up snout, which I just think is so, uh, it's, a, it's a nice touch. He looks like a tomcat that's been through a few fights. And um, he's feeling pretty bad about himself and doesn't really want to accept any help or comfort or hope of getting out. And so he's not the most inspiring version of a armored bear even if even taking into account the lack of armor. And in the books one thing that really stands out is how prideful he is even at this low moment of his life that he he you know he says from the get go the only reason I'm here is because they stole my armor and I don't know where it is and I looked for it and I couldn't find it but if I knew where it was I would take it instantly and kill them all and go away. And yeah. that's not the York we get here. The York we get here regrets the killing that he did in town, it seems, when he was looking for his armor the first time. He uh, is a little bit uh, mopey. And I'm not convinced that, you know, where the, ch the change of Lee from a little more wistful to a little more active seemed right. This almost seems like a change in the opposite direction. And I like the, the big personality York, who in his way is a a keystone for us to understand the big personalities and the inhuman personalities of armored bears, armored bears who don't really seem to truly regret killing the way that humans do. So I'm not convinced that that's the best move, but I will say that he looks fucking great. And from those little, from the little battle scars on his nose to how d truly disgusting his fur looks, it really looks like he's just been rolling around in shit for like months. And to the like the big pot of spirits that he's chugging, just as I always imagined, York Bernison would chug a, a big pot of spirits. I always thought of him in the book as being someone whose downfall is completely the result of booze. And and maybe in this, I see him less as ashamed of the killing than ashamed of the weakness of the booze. I mean, he mm. does seem like an alcoholic, <laughs> and I, maybe that's what they're going for. Uh, I look forward to the scene of Yorick sitting in a circle with a bunch of other <laughs> alcoholics, just like talking through some stuff and like go to everyone and apologize yeah. for it, for all the harm that he's done. Well, we do get Lyra facing Yorick and Lyra giving him the, the information that he needs, although in this episode, it's, it happens in a much more roundabout way. Do you play cards? <laughs> what do you know about cards? I used to play them with the scholars where I lived. They were much cleverer than me, but I generally won. I learned that sometimes a bad hand can be your greatest weapon. Sometimes when there is no hope, allow you to bluff magnificently. Remind me never to play cards with you. We need you and the bear. You need the bear and I'm secondary. How do we get him to come with us? It's not that York tells her this is what I need. It's that she tells Lee uh, that she wants York and then Lee tells her that what she needs is the armor and then she 
tries to convince the Egyptians that they need Yorick and then they say no. And then she goes and gets him anyway. And it's, it sort of seemed like maybe there was just a little extra business added to make sure that this felt like a whole episode. And I agree with you that one of the things I really did like about it in the book was the way it seemed like a whole self-contained fable. As you say, you get the sense that long after the events of the golden compass, after all the cataclysm and the monumental world shaking events that we readers of the book know are coming, the people of Trollocund will just still be talking about the time that that bear got away and how angry yeah. they all are. And <laughs> I love that. the bear and how it got away. Yeah. Right. And, and he scared that servant and her hen demon right out of the house. And it was so upsetting. Yeah. Uh, and, and I missed, I sort of missed that kind of small towny, like almost like a children's story in a way that I really loved in, in the midst of a book that is a children's book, yet I love for its sort of non-children-y aspects. Yeah, it's almost like a, almost a picture book story. Yeah. Um, I really love this setting. I just want to jump in here and say I'm very excited that we finally got into the North. The idea of the North as this frontier space of adventure and fewer rules and more sort of wild freewheeling characters that it's basically like the wild west but instead of i don't know sagebrush and desert there's there's ice and snow and and these amazing bears um but it's just the whole novel well at least the whole first novel is just sort of saturated with the romance of the sort of, of polar adventures and and it's just exciting almost i can't even tell if if it's that i'm just so excited about the way that it's portrayed in the episode or i'm 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 still harboring all of the the thrill of the idea of the north from the books so just like the moment where Lyra is at the front of the boat and she sees the mountain in the background and then the, the kind of ramshackle frontier town in the front. I, I just felt like, yes, yes, they're north. They finally made it north. Um, I, I just, I'm, it's exciting to have the setting open up in this way. And Trollocent is so beautifully designed. Like that is a really yeah. great design job that they did. And it is funny that we are introduced to the grandeur of the north through a real shitberg. This, like, this is like just a gritty, grubby shipping town with a bunch of bars filled with like chumps. Yeah. It reminds me of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh that, yeah. Yeah. That old film. Yeah. Like a town that the town that just got built in like the last 20 years. Muddy, and, muddy yeah. streets. Yeah. Um, it's, it was apparently built uh, in Wales and they just like built it on a big sheep farm. They built it from scratch. And then the day after they finished filming, all the Trollison scenes, they just took it all down. So now it's, it's completely gone. And totally in the spirit of Philip Pullman's Potemkin villages. Right, exactly. And it's and hearing Lin-Manuel Miranda at this talkback talk about how much fun it was just to walk around that set, uh, it really made me appreciate, you know, the uh, just the amount of physical set building and work that's going into this. It is not all digital magic on this show. You know, there's plenty of CGI that they're doing and all the, you know, they're obviously not building a bunch of Zeppelins and whatnot. And then the bears are CGI and everything, but they really built this like grubby little town and let all their actors walk around in it for a week. And they, you know, they put a pinball machine in the bar. 
there's there's like a branded <laughs> pinball trollman machine in the bar that no one ever touches or looks at, but it's just sitting there in the background. And the yeah. the, the level of detail in Charleston was really gratifying to me. And I, I I like you am excited about the move to the north, a place where the sort of the heart and soul of the first part of the story really resides, and where the evil that they have to face also resides. But the, but that's where everything lives, and it's great that they're getting there. Meanwhile. Mrs. Coulter gets called in front of magisterium officials. One of them uh, is actually played by Daphne Keene's dad. The I guess they're all bald white guys, but one of the bald white guys is played by Daphne Keene's dad. And they reprimand her for rating Jordan College, which apparently she was not actually authorized to do. They're upset about it. But she refutes them because she tells them she has Lord Asriel. Beautifully done. Mm. Now should I tell you why you won't? and why I go north tomorrow. I have Lord Azrael. You have Azrael? In a jail, controlled by bears who are, in this case, controlled by me. So I was really interested in this interaction, seeing laid bare the way that they're both trying to exert power over each other. And it made me want to talk about, well, what power does the magisterium really have? So let's take a closer look at the magisterium in this episode. The name itself, magisterium, comes from the Catholic Church's name for the authority that the church has to interpret the word and will of God. So it's why the word of the pope is the word of God, basically. The magisterium is that concept. So, Laura, that raises a question. How does the magisterium match the Catholic Church, our Catholic Church, and how is it different? Well, in the first place, it has no pope. In the second place, it has a much wider and deeper lock on the culture. I think the important thing about the magisterium in Lyra's world is that there was no Protestant Reformation. The last pope was John Calvin, who in our world became a reformer and founded a major Protestant sect, if they're called that. I was raised as a Catholic, so Protestants are are still somewhat exotic to me. Um, but uh, <laughs> and but, only um, to you, yeah. Well, I'm just like, are are the different denominations of Protestantism sects or what? I think they're just denominations. <laughs> but anyway, there's a tr- it, the, there's the magisterium, and then there's the Holy Church, which is uh, perhaps they're more or less the same thing. But very famously, in the film version of The Golden Compass. They never used the expression the Holy Church because there was all this anxiety about offending Catholics, some of whom were, in fact, offended by both the books and the film. That church is headquartered in Geneva, which is where Calvin was active. And although we don't get a full history of the institution, there's a strong suggestion that at the moment when, in our world, challenges were raised to the power and the dominion of the Catholic Church that effectively caused a large number of congregants to split off and go into these these other religions, these other forms of Christianity. Instead, somehow, the magisterium managed to hold it all together. So, it is as powerful in Lyra's modern world as the Catholic Church was 
in, say, the Middle Ages, which is really powerful, but in an interesting way, not necessarily out of sheer force, more through sort of moral authority. It's a little mysterious what the dimensions of the magisterium's power are. Are they the sort of validating power of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which in the founding, the Anglican Church was founded because Henry VIII wanted a divorce from his first wife, and the Pope wouldn't give it to him. So he had to create his own church in order to do it. But the power to grant someone a divorce is not like a military power. It's a power of authority, of belief, of the faith that a lot of people have in the institution. And in Lyra's world, people don't seem that religious. And so, you makes me wonder if perhaps the magisterium is almost more like a kind of a totalitarian state. In other words, that it has a very extensive police force, which it seems to have, and that imposes sort of ideological conformity, which it definitely seems to be doing, but it doesn't have maybe the kind of moral authority that the Catholic Church had in the Middle Ages. Right. People are afraid of heresy, but not because of what it means for your soul. They're afraid because of what it means for your future. It means that you'll be tracked down by the magisterium if you commit heresy and and punished. And you don't see in this ostensibly very religious world people go to church. I can't remember a single mention of anyone just going to church in in any of these books. I'm sure maybe there is like a casual mention at some point, but it's not anything that is really registered to me. There are there are nuns, there are monks, I believe. There are you know there are people, there are clergy. But you don't see them doing the kind of day-to-day work that clergy do in our world, and you certainly don't see them preaching. So I like the idea of thinking of the magisterium as a kind of like one-world government, the replacing the various secular authorities that we have in our world with sort of one overarching authority that – Uh, is ostensibly religious, but mostly that religion is used as a way of of bending people to their will as opposed to actually trying to save people or get them to heaven. Exactly. And we don't see ordinary people. I mean, if this was a like any Catholics or most Catholics that I've known in my life, they don't have rosaries, they don't have crucifixes, they don't talk about their souls or sin or anything of the sort. The ordinary people of this world seem not especially religious at all. Yeah. Uh, the totalitarian nature of this, you know, this sort of one world government is definitely suggested in their architecture in this series yeah. where they have these incredible, like, I believe CGI fascist style, like semi-brutalist Things, the places that they walk around in, and that enormous, the grand chamber of the magisterium where maybe everyone comes together once every 10 years. I don't know, but it seemed as like an arena that you could just fill with fanatical magisterium officials. It absolutely looks like a governmental space or a political space, not. Uh, sacred space. Right. There's no there's no frill work. There's no iconography. There's nothing that suggests the overarching belief system up around which this bureaucracy is organized. It only suggests the bureaucracy. That's the point of it. 
we we know, as you say, that they have a police force. We know that they have actually sort of multiple different kinds of police forces we'll see over the course of this series. They are divided as the Catholic Church is into a number of little boards. And in the books, they talk about how these boards are forever jostling for power and seizing opportunities when one board falls out of favor with the, with the higher authorities and another board doesn't. And perhaps this reflects in some way the lack of a pope at the head of this version of the church. And I know that the Catholic Church also is very bureaucratic, but within the Catholic Church, is are there these kinds of power struggles? I mean, maybe not to the death the way power struggles appear to be here, but are those little bureaucratic agencies within the Catholic Church trying to, to gain ever more power in this, you know, sort of Darwinian fight or is it more peaceful? <laughs> well, I, I, now suddenly I'm the expert on Catholicism. Um no, I mean, I think that that is historically accurate. There are many factions within the Catholic Church, different monastic orders from which officials can come and have different loyalties to different people, you know, little divisions that deal with, say, validating miracles, which is something that is may seem kind of absurd and charming, but actually is a huge it's a huge source of stress and tension within the church. The, you know, whether certain occurrences can be validated as miracles and whether the cult of those miracles can get out of control and challenge the authority of the church itself or exorcism or I'm sure far more mundane, less interesting things like deciding what goes on the list of forbidden books and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, there have always, I mean, it's like any kind of, powerful institution, there are always factions that struggle against each other. Sometimes they're, they take on the name of offices, but usually there's people behind it who are fighting with each other for, for power. So if that power that the magisterium wields is essentially authoritarian, not moral, what then is their gripe with dust and with Azrael's work, and you know, leaving aside that we that we in this at this point in the series sort of don't know everything there is to know about dust, still they express people in the magisterium that we hear from express their concerns with it in terms of well, it is heretical, it goes against what we believe, but it seems like what they really must fear is a threat to their authority, right? That they believe dust yes. holds within it the possibility of rebellion. It does. And it's important to remember when it comes to Philip Pullman's attitude towards religion, he doesn't, I mean, he's not a religious person, but he doesn't sort of detest religion out of hand. He is more repelled by certain institutional qualities. And one of them is the idea that you have a, a foundational text that is inerrant. It can never have anything wrong and it. it can never be incomplete. And I believe that's what the magisterium is freaked out about with the dust, that it has a story, it has scriptures that are supposed to describe all of reality as the magisterium wants it to be described, that they are in charge of deciding what exists and how it works. And so if it turns out that there is some kind of X factor or that there are other worlds that are not accounted for in the Holy Scriptures, 
that threatens their authority because it threatens the inerrancy of the text. And in fact, Pullman does appreciate to some extent the power of that text, at least the story power of it, right? He's his maternal grandfather uh, was an Anglican clergyman. You talked about this in your profile in The New Yorker. And he told Philip Pullman stories out of the Bible when he was young. And those stories obviously hold sway over this whole entire trilogy. You hear little bits and pieces and see little bits and pieces of many familiar Bible stories throughout, starting from the Great Flood that was the first moment of this TV series. You know, there's this quote in um, the third book that a character, you know, where a character expresses what I think many people have taken as Philip Pullman's overarching view of religion, which I think is not exactly accurate. But there's this line that a character says, the Christian religion is a very powerful and convincing mistake. That's all. And Pullman has often said that he expected especially when the books became quite popular, that they would engender a lot of protest, that the Christians would protest or even boycott the books. And he has been surprised that they they haven't really, as he once joked, he said, poor J.K. Rowling got all the protests about her witches and wizards and I, and, and I escaped it. But um, there were some protests of the movie, right, when that movie came out? Yeah, I think the the main thing to remember is that most of the sort of, um, I'm just going to say fundamentalist type Christians who objected to the Harry Potter books were in America, and Philip Pullman's books are very well known in the UK, but they weren't so well known in America. And one of the reasons why there was such pushback against the Harry Potter books is that they were just so ubiquitous and every child was reading them. And His Dark Materials was more for the sort of a particular kind of very brainy child who I can completely picture in my head every time I read them. I feel like I know exactly who the intended reader of um, of these books is because I was that child myself. And those children are less likely to be in the kind of families where the adults are going to suddenly notice and be really upset. Or if they are in those families, they're smart enough not to tell their parents about the book. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and I think the movie just ushered in the books and their themes to a wider awareness because it was then a pop culture thing, not a literary thing. And um and there were definitely, you know, there were definitely some Catholics in the UK who who objected to to the series, not so much for um his atheism as for the negative depiction of the church itself. And I'm pretty sure the Catholic Defense League, which was just a, a outfit that exists to be outraged about supposedly negative depictions of Catholics had a had a campaign against the original film. And that's the main source of the 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 complaints. I mean, it's not clear from from the beginning of the story that that the person who wrote it claims to be an atheist and is sort of promulgating an anti-religious message. Um, if that is, in fact, the case. I'm not always sure that is the case. But it's definitely against religious power. And I just don't think that religious power is as big a deal in the UK. It's felt to be as much of a, 
a threat to civil society as it is here. So obviously the the Bible and, and its stories influence Pullman storytelling, as we've said, but there are two main literary influences on his dark materials that also have a lot to do with the sort of grand uh, good versus evil religious themes that Pullman is addressing in these books. And it's Milton's Paradise Lost and the poetry of William Blake. Do you want to talk a little bit about those two influences and how so far we've seen them playing out through the the story as we've seen it? Well, when Philip originally agreed with his British editor, David Fickling, to write this series, the idea was going to be that it was going to be based on Paradise Lost, because both of them remembered being taught taught the poem in grammar school, I think. And, 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 and Philip wrote an introduction to a recent edition of Paradise Lost where he goes into detail about how he had this beloved teacher and she taught them the poem by having them read it aloud without really worrying whether they understood it first because she knew that the glory of the poem, like the foundation of it, was the language and the sort of... Um, grandeur of that um uh of its cadences and its sentence structures and 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 it's all so it's full of exotic names and 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 references you know it's not obvious that this this series is actually based on paradise loss which is as philip himself puts it is basically a story about devils it begins with all of the fallen angels in hell right after they have fallen and they're just kind of lying in these pits or these lakes of fire and and sort of they've just lost this their their rebellion against God and and they're kind of pulling themselves together and Satan gives them a big pep talk and then eventually they figure out how they're going to get revenge or try to strike back and as he puts it when you introduce a character at the beginning, that's going to seem like the main character, <laughs> and uh, and and so it 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 is kind of a poem about Satan, and definitely William Blake thought that. Um, you know, a couple hundred years later, when Blake was reading and writing, he described Milton as being a true poet, and therefore of the devil's party without knowing it. Like many, many people, Blake noticed that Satan is also the most interesting and exciting character in Paradise Lost. And for Blake, I mean, I, I would say that that Pullman's ethos is closer to Blake's. You know, he he also had ideas about innocence and experience that were not totally conventional. And he was a romantic. He was a free thinker. He was a Swedenborgian, which is a sort of impossible to describe <laughs> sort of religious uh, orientation or a belief in angels. He was like a visionary. He, he um, it's almost impossible to really describe what Blake believed. But I think that his idea of innocence and experience is closer to Pullman's than Milton's idea of the fall from grace and and justifying the way of God to man, which is the express purpose that Paradise Lost has. But 
what Philip loved about Paradise Lost, what he continues to adore about it, and what he was sharing with David Fickling when he was deciding that he was going to write this trilogy based on it, is the just the kind of epic grandeur of it. I mean, this is like the Beethoven, the Grand Canyon, the cinemascope of poetry. It is so big and awe-inspiring and and majestic and and thrilling that um he, he never forgot it. You know, he learned parts of it. And at this famous lunch where Philip decided to write this trilogy, he and David were exchanging favorite quotes that they had kept from their childhood. And I could try to read some of those to you, but they are a little difficult to get across because Milton is sort of famous for something called enjambment, which is breaking breaking up sentences Um with the, uh, against the line, but I'll read something that might give you a sense of of how how it feels. That's a little bit easier to follow. And this is from the description of how a particular ain't fallen angel, the architect of heaven, fell. Nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece and in Ausonian land. Men called him Mulciber, and how he fell from heaven they fabled, thrown by angry Jove, sheer o'er the crystal battlements. From morn till noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star." So it's the kind of poem where when someone falls, they fall for an entire day. That's how much space is taken up by this poem. And that was the effect that he was really reaching for. It's clear as you go through the series that the it's it begins very intentionally narrow and widens and widens and widens and widens through the three books until it becomes, I mean, it is reasonable to say, without spoiling anything, that it covers more territory than perhaps any other children's book series ever. And It's, um, it's more than cosmic. Yes. Yeah. And um, – and 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 that's a beautiful way to think about that. I'm I am really struck by that line from Blake about Milton that he was of the devil's party without knowing it. And I guess Pullman not only agrees with agrees with that, but he loves to quote that and then sort of puckishly add, you know, I'm of the devil's party and I know it. What he said about Milton was it was the grandeur, the nobility, the overwhelming magnitude of ambition and imaginative power of Paradise Lost that attracted him. Not, I would say, the message, which is that you should be obedient to God. <laughs> All right. So where do we end this episode? We've got Mrs. Coulter with her own bear uh, who she meets in a in a cave and he's wearing a fantastic bejeweled beautiful piece of armor himself. He's holding Azrael captive and she woos him with promises of baptism. He, unlike Philip Pullman, does think he ought to be obedient to God, apparently. And Lyra and the Egyptians with Lee and York have left Trollocent and are heading toward Bolvanger, the fields of evil. What did you think of this episode overall? And, and what did uh, we've, we've recognized that we love Trollocent and we love being in the North. 
But how do you think that this episode sort of propelled us forward and and what did what did you love it or not love about it? Well, one of the things I really loved about it is that we have more of the Lyra that you and I both value. She's crafty. She's a bluffer. She's uh, She lies a little bit here and there. She is canny in a way that um, that she hasn't been in some of the preceding episodes. And in fact, one of the smartest questions that she asks of the witch's emissary, um, which is, what? should I be asking you, is is actually taken from um, Fodder Corum. You know, it, it's, it's a kind of question that you can't, it's hard to imagine any child being clever enough to ask, but it's given to her in this episode, and it feels that she's m- more in charge or at least more of an active player in, in what's happening. It's really striking the difference between uh, the witch's console scene in the book and the witch's console scene in the show. In the book, Lyra is a child who is clever-ish during that conversation, but also runs out and plays with the sprigs of cloud pine and pretends like she's flying while Fartacorum and the witch's console have a very serious conversation about her. And here it's her driving that scene. It's her driving the conversation with the witch's console. It's her asking that question, that very potent question. And it's her uh, down in the cellar with the cloud pine, very carefully picking one out and understanding its meaning instantly. And, and I like, I think I like those changes, even, you know, every time that I have my boring knee jerk reaction of that's not how it was in the book. (laughs) I do see like, this is a way of making her more of a player in this great adventure in ways that I think will be beneficial down the line. I will say that it would not have killed Jack Thorne to in the scene where Lyra's bluffing to not have her talk about how when she plays cards, she loves to bluff. Yes. Okay. Like you didn't necessarily have to have that (laughs) for us to get that she's bluffing. Yes, it's true. But then she, she has a little callback later where when Lee says, you told me that that uh, John Faw wanted to hire me. And then she's, she gets to say, what did I tell you about bluffing? Yes, it is really on the nose. But we kind of almost need that because she has been a little bit less uh, I don't know, manipulative and clever in the preceding episodes. And we needed, I think, a reminder that she literally did lie to Lee. Like she's playing all of these right. adults off against each other. To get the result that yeah. she wants, which is to have the kind of Northern adventure that she has always yeah. dreamed of. Yeah. She wants uh, her bear. Which So I love, I love that it is a little bit for like childish purposes, but also it probably is really going to help this expedition to have an enormous armored bear along with them. Um, I, 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 I just think you can probably pull the uh, entire scene off just with the bacon, just her stealing Lee's bacon (laughs) really tells you all you need to know about who holds the power in that conversation. Um, so it ends with them heading up the hill toward the mountains. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda noted in his talk back that, uh, the thing that you can't see in that shot because they digitally replaced it with all those majestic mountains was just a million sheep at the top of the hill that they they like ran their sledges and and walked up that hill and then at the end of the shot they were just surrounded by sheep then they had to herd all the sheep away and get back down the hill. All right. That's our episode. We will be back next week to discuss episode 5 of His Dark Materials, 
The Lost Boy. The Authority is hosted by me, Dan Coyce, with Laura Miller. On Twitter, I'm at Dan Coyce, and Laura is at Magician's Book, or drop us a line, asktheauthority at slate.com. Our producer is Phil Circus, engineering assistance from Rosemary Belson. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. Until next week. <laughs>